You're listening to Know Your Rights with Ellen Firestone. What's going on, guys? Greg here, and you are tuned into Know Your Rights with Ellen Firestone. And today we are going through articles 6 through 12. Thank you, Greg. We've grouped these particular articles together because they all have to do with law and justice. And I'm joined here today with two very special guests from Delaware Law School. The first is Aaron Daly. Aaron is a professor of law at Delaware Law School and is the author of Dignity Rights, Courts, Constitutions, and the Worth of the Human Person. She's also the author of Reconciliation in Divided Societies, Finding Common Ground. Aaron is the director of the Global Network for Human Rights and the Environment. Our other guest today is Jim May. Jim is a distinguished professor of law at Widener University Delaware Law School. Jim is also the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of a dozen books. Aaron and Jim are the co-founders and directors of the Dignity Rights Project, an organization that helps to advance the dignity rights of vulnerable around the world in matters relating to environmental, health, education, and political participation, among other things. They have written extensively on environmental rights, and they are currently at work on several projects about dignity rights, including the first legal case Thank book you, on Aaron the subject. Thank you, Erin and Jim, for coming by the, the station today and doing this next podcast with us. Uh, I'd like to start by asking why you think these seven articles are so important to the Declaration. Hi, thanks. And first of all, it's a real pleasure to be here. So thank you for this opportunity. So this is an interesting part of the Universal Declaration. Um, the Declaration, it all contains 30 articles. So these seven articles are a big chunk of that, about a quarter of the whole de- uh, Declaration is devoted to what some people have called legal rights, that is, uh, rights with respect to people in their legal capacities as against the state. So one of the things that the drafters were concerned about was this moment when the individual comes sort of at his or her most vulnerable, face-to-face with the state in all its power and all its sort of legal might. Um, and wanted to make sure that individuals who meet the state on that ground are treated properly or treated respectfully and have um, have the rights that they should have. So in general, I think these articles were very much focused on this moment when people come face to face with the state. They were also, um, this is a document, as, as you know, um, that was drafted in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, and with uh, particularly the German Holocaust very much on people's minds. And the Nazi state was a highly legalistic state. It had courts and judges and laws and all the things that would make a system look like a legal system, and yet it wasn't. It was corrupted from the inside throughout. And so one of the challenges they had was to figure out what were the rights that people have to have in a legal system to make sure that that you could distinguish between the sort of the false Nazi legal system and a true legal system. So they were very much concerned with identifying the particular rights that you'd have to have in a true legal system. Wow, that's awesome. I never knew that. (laughs) Okay, and Jim, is there anything you want to add to as far as why you think these particular rights are so important to the Declaration? Sure. Um, And again, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Uh, So first things first, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights is arguably the most important legal instrument that's ever been drafted. Mm -hmm. Um, 
It's, uh, it's used to shape constitutions and laws all across the globe. So it has a legal effect, but it also has a normative effect. When people think about what their fundamental rights are, um, the Universal Declaration serves as sort of a blueprint for doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, so these particular rights that we're talking about, the legal rights that Aaron mentioned, are serve the purpose of guarding against arbitrary governmental action. And that can be in a courtroom, that can be in a classroom, that can be in society. So these are rights that are supposed to be um, supposed to reflect those that are fundamental to human beings. Uh, mm -hmm. Their equal worth, um, their rights before tribunals, how they should have, everyone should have access to redress. If their fundamental rights are violated, that they should be protected against arbitrary government action and criminal proceedings in a variety of ways. So it was fundamental, uh, these six rights were fundamental to uh, this outcome document, this universal declaration, mm -hmm. um, which is this uh, embodiment of what it means to be a human being and the right to be human. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as, you know, the, some of these other podcasts that we had done, we talked about, you know, what the actual articles are, um, maybe some violations that people have seen, and then what people, everyday citizens can do about it. What do you think are the most important takeaways as far as for... Um, an American citizen or a citizen of, of the world for, for these particular articles? That's a great question. So, so let me just mention that you can think of these articles 6 through 12 sort of as a set, right? Mm -hmm. They concern one sort of set of issues. And Article 6 in particular I think is really interesting. I know your, your listeners have heard this, but just to sort of repeat what it says, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. We can learn so much from that one article. One thing we see in that article is just how simple it is. Mm -hmm. It's a very simple idea. And the drafters were very conscious about not making a complicated legal document. They wanted to express ideas that everybody could understand. And so, for instance, with that article, they talked about recognizing legal personhood or juristic personhood or something, and they scrapped that language in favor of a much more generally sort of understandable concept that every person should be treated as a person before the law. You might hear that and say, well, that's circular. Of course, everybody's going to be treated mm -hmm. as a person. But the drafters had something very particular in mind when they said as a person. And that is the idea that you've talked about in previous podcasts, but the idea of human dignity which is the concept on which the whole declaration rests and the whole sort of description of who the human beings are who are entitled to these rights that are being described in the declaration. So as your listeners know, in the preamble in Article 1 and elsewhere in the declaration, the drafters referred to um, the essential quality, the inherent um, e and equal dignity of every person, the idea that every person has inherent and equal worth, regardless of situation of birth, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of whether you come from a colonial country or a colonized country, every person has this, has this equal worth. And it's that notion that the drafters wanted to sort of start this set of articles with, mm -hmm. this idea that if you understand nothing else, if you read no further, you should at least know that in this legal context, Every person should be treated with human dignity. Every person should be treated as a person. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Just to underscore the importance of human dignity to the Universal Declaration, mm 
uh, it is the purpose of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So, the, so promoting human dignity is uh, the end that the Universal Declaration is aiming to achieve. And the 30 articles within are the means for achieving that purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, so human dignity was first and foremost on uh, the minds of many of the drafters of the Universal Declaration. And it's the basic purpose behind that declaration, which has then formed the basis for international law as we know it, modern international law, uh, which uh, also affects um, environmental rights and socioeconomic rights um, and also civil and political rights. So dignity is the foundation for modern law. One other thing to think about these rights as a group is how they were arrived at. So you could say that there's a lot of different qualities of a, of a legal system that you'd want to have in your legal system to make sure it was fair. And they chose from among all of those possibilities, they chose the ones that they identified here. Some of those have sort of particular salience to the time, but others they found by looking at the constitutions of the various countries that were represented by delegations at the Commission on Human Rights. And so they had occasion to look at the rights that were already recognized in most of, not necessarily all of, but most of the constitutions where there was already sort of a global consensus that these are some of the essential qualities that you'd need to have in a true and fair and just legal system. So, for instance, the principle of equality before the law is in Article 7 and is obviously an important element one that was certainly lacking in the Nazi legal system, but an important element, an essential element of any fair legal system. And you see that in several of the other articles also. Thank you, Aaron and Jim. Now we're going to move on to the next article. Article 7 is all are equal before the law and entitled without any discrimination to equal protection of the law. All are entitled to equal protection against any discrimination in violation of this declaration and against any incitement to such discrimination. So, Jim, if you want to give us, in your own words, you know, what that means and why it's important to this declaration or the study of the declaration. Um, what's really interesting about this provision, this Article 7, is that it was um, adopted in 1948. And that um, precedes uh, a lot of modern constitutions that recognize gender rights and uh, equality in a whole variety of settings. Mm -hmm. But one thing to note, just by way of comparison to the United States Constitution, is that it's written much more broadly than the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. At least under our jurisprudence, uh, the Constitution um, provides for uh, or, or against discrimination in a, in, in a variety of very specific settings. Like the government has to have a compelling reason to discriminate based upon race, mm -hmm. for example. But all other forms, virtually all other forms of discrimination the government's actions are, are given a lot of latitude. This is different. This is saying that no matter the type of discrimination, it's a, it's a violation of a fundamental right that's recognized universally and has been in place uh, 70 years. The other thing that's interesting about Article 7 is, um, again, the language it's written in is indicative of or representative of the language that's used throughout the Declaration, which is non-sexist. And the drafters were very concerned about that. So it avoids any suggestion of sexism. And there was a lot of discussion during the drafting about Article 7, because how could you 
1948 or even now say that all are equal before the law, when in fact that's so obviously not true in so many ways, both in the United States and abroad. And yet what the drafters were trying to do was not ignore the reality, but say that regardless of how people are treated by their legal systems in certain instances, all people are fundamentally equal before the law, that they were declaring something that was essentially true about human beings, Mm -hmm. not describing how fair and just all legal systems were. So I think that's an important um, point also. Mm -hmm. And one other astonishing thing about it, and I'd like to hear Aaron's thoughts about this as well, is how long it takes society to catch up to Mm -hmm. some of these principles from something that's been in place for 71 years now. Mm -hmm. An example is our home state of Delaware, which uh, took until 2018, 70 years uh, to the year since the adoption of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights um, to recognize gender equality under its constitution. Wow. And, you know, I, I had mentioned in previous podcasts as well that this declaration, obviously we know there are violations to many, if not most of these articles, but the idea that the the drafters, I believe they were, you know, coming together to say this is how we best get along as human beings, you know, and if, if we do this, we're going to have a much better world, you know, and um, it's still a work our in goal, progress. A work in progress, exactly. So um, if we move on to Article 8, which is everyone has the right to an effective remedy by the competent national tribunals for acts violating the fundamental rights granted him by the Constitution or by law. So what's what are our important takeaways from that? So the principle important takeaway is uh, it recognizes that uh, the law plays not a role just in providing rights, but also in providing remedies for upholding those rights. Okay. Uh, and that under, um, under constitutions or under law, governments are required to provide an opportunity for people to seek redress when the government has violated basic human rights. Mm-hmm. And okay, and then uh, the next one, Article 9. No one shall be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention, or exile. So this is a really important concept. And again, the drafters were sort of hiding how profound it was in order to make the point more simple and more easily accessible. The notion that people are entitled to protection against arbitrary government action goes back in our legal culture to the Magna Carta. Um, to the notion of what we call in our Constitution due process of law. That is, that the executive, as it were, the king, does not have the power to simply arrest somebody, to simply take action and change someone's legal status. It has to be done according to the due process of law, according to the law of the land. Mm -hmm. And this right against arbitrary action is tapping into that notion that um, that no, you know, police force, no tyrant should be able to simply arrest or, or seize people or subject them to detention or exile. Well said. Thank you, Aaron. Um, then Article 10, everyone is entitled in full equality to a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal in the determination of his rights and obligations and of any criminal charge against him. So Article 10 has two components to it. The first is about what we call civil proceedings. The second is about criminal proceedings. Mm -hmm. So civil and political and cultural and economic and social rights 
are generally under law called civil uh, rights. They're, they're general civil rights that human beings enjoy, access to justice, access to information, um, uh, the ability to uh, have a remedy for a violation of a fundamental right that's abridged by government. The other half of it is about criminal rights. And um, Article 10, like the article uh, just, that just precedes it, 9 and 11, um, is an embodiment of some of the provisions that are found in the United States Constitution, mm -hmm. such as um, the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits the government from unreasonable search and seizure, the Fifth Amendment that uh, protects people from having to uh, self-incriminate themselves, and also the ability to uh, confront their accusers, the Sixth Amendment, which provides for a right to a speedy trial and a right to counsel, mm -hmm. um, the Seventh Amendment, which provides for a right to jury trial in certain kinds of um, what are called common law cases, and the Eighth Amendment, which um, guarantees uh, a right against cruel and unusual punishment. So mm -hmm. the Universal Declaration is sort of a reflection, uh, sort of an echo of some of the provisions that have been bedrock provisions under United States constitutional law mm -hmm. since 1791. It also reflects here again, you can see especially the drafters um, trying to respond to the Nazi legal system, right, where you had a judge, but that judge was in no way impartial or neutral. That judge was a Nazi judge um, advancing Nazi policies. Uh -huh. And so the bedrock of due process is having an impartial and neutral decision maker. Mm -hmm. So they basically, you know, were trying to or attempting to remedy what had just happened with the Holocaust and World War II. Yeah, remedy the, the, and make sure that that no legal system could call itself a legal system. Right. If it, unless it had these essential elements. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, next is Article 11, and this one does have two parts. Um, part one, everyone charged with a penal offense has the right to be presumed innocent until proved guilty according to law in a public trial at which he has had all the guarantees necessary for his defense. And then part two, no one shall be held guilty of any penal offense on account of any act or omission which did not constitute a penal offense under national or international law at the time when it was committed, nor shall a heavier penalty be imposed than the one that was applicable at the time the penal offense was committed. Well, the first part of that is uh, sort of a direct um, reflection of what's customary in practices and uh, under constitutional laws many places of the country, even preceding World War II, mm -hmm. that it was the right to legal representation, the right to a fair trial, um, the right to be uh, to respond to charges and to confront those who are charging, like, as I mentioned earlier, under the United States constitutional system. Um, so that, that's, that's what the first part of Article 11 does. The second part of it is it really is a reflection of experiences under the Nazi regime that Aaron mentioned. So I'll turn, so I'll ask Aaron to answer. The second part is actually ironic because it wasn't so much a response to the Nazi tribunals as much as to the Nuremberg tribunals. So at the end of World War II, there was a series of trials in Germany and also in Tokyo where leaders of the regimes were tried and found guilty of certain crimes that actually had not been named beforehand. And so they were found guilty of things like crimes against humanity, mm -hmm. which were not, in fact, under law, crimes at the time that the acts were committed. And that fact, the fact that the allies held people 
accountable for crimes that were not illegal at the time that they were committed was very, very controversial Mm -hmm. and gave rise to a lot of um, differing viewpoints, both within the Commission on Human Rights, but also outside and in the world generally, the question of simply whether that was just or not. Mm -hmm. And what the drafters were trying to do here was, without naming the Nuremberg trial specifically, but say, as a general matter, we should not be holding people accountable, saying that people are guilty of crimes if those crimes were not named at the time that they were committed. The argument that the Nuremberg trials were nonetheless legitimate is simply that crimes against humanity were crimes, even if they hadn't been named, Mm -hmm. they were still criminal acts that everybody would have known were criminal acts. So it wasn't an indictment of the Nuremberg trials, but a real response in trying to wrestle with the problem that those trials engendered. Thank you. Um, And then the last article that we're going to cover today, Article 12, no one shall be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family, home, or correspondence, nor to attacks upon his honor and reputation. Everyone has the right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. Well, the, the first part of Article 12 is uh, maybe to listeners in the United States for the most part uh, is a reflection of the sort of idea that the government can't occupy your, your house. Um, article, I'm sorry, the Third Amendment prohibits that. The government can't uh, take over your land without your permission. It also can't take your property without providing just compensation. Um, it also can't arrest you or charge you with, uh, without probable cause, and it, can, and it cannot engage in unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, so it's, as we mentioned earlier, it's a, a bulwark against arbitrary governmental action um, and is reflected in constitutional systems um, around the globe. Okay, thank you, Jim. Um, So I'd like to just end with uh, a little discussion or if you can share a bit about the dignity rights. I know you both, Aaron has written a book specifically on dignity rights and Jim. I've read it. (laughs) Okay, you've read it. (laughs) But you both work together on this topic and it's so important. And I, you know, I love what you said about the, the declaration. You know, really, if you summed it up in one word, it's dignity. So if you want to share something on that. So thank you for that. Um, so Jim and I have been working for a few years on a dignity on on advancing the dignity rights of people around the world, and as you can see from the placement of dignity in the UDHR at the beginning, but also sort of permeating every other right, the applications of dignity are extremely broad, right? And one of the we. We're interested in this for a couple of reasons. One is that along the lines of what we've been saying about the UDHR, dignity is an interest that everybody feels. Everybody has it. Mm -hmm. When there's a wrong committed against you, you feel it as a violation of your dignity. You don't feel it as a violation of section something or other of some law. You feel it as a violation of your dignity. And that's true whether it's because they've put up an incinerator in your backyard or whether you've been a victim of a crime or whether you just didn't get the education that you deserved or for whatever reasons, whether your speech was silenced or for whatever reasons. Um, And so we think that dignity has very broad applications, but also it's a way to bring people into the law 
It's a way for people to be able to understand their legal rights um, because most of our legal rights are rights because they're violations of our dignity. Mm -hmm. Courts around the world in the last um, 20, 30 years have been paying more attention to the right to dignity. And this is one of the real sort of concrete legacies that we can see of the Universal Declaration. We've said that a lot of the rights that are articulated in the Universal Declaration were chosen because they were already represented. There was already a legal consensus and they were already represented in many constitutions around the world. That's not true of dignity. It hadn't really been recognized globally as a fundamental aspect of human rights. And so when the Universal Declaration puts it front and center in its listing of rights, that was a, an innovation. That was a really important innovation. Since then, we've seen the concept of dignity spread to almost every constitution in the world. Dignity is recognized explicitly in almost 160 of the 190 plus constitutions that there are in the world. So it's become a truly universal constitutional right. Mm -hmm. Courts around the world, um, in consequence, have been paying more, more and more attention to that. And part of what we would like to do is educate lawyers as well as lay people about the ways that dignity can be a very valuable legal tool. So we're, um, the project that we're working on uses advocacy, litigation, and education as ways of advancing knowledge of, understanding of, and appreciation of the work that dignity can do mm -hmm. in a legal system in advancing legal rights. So dignity rights matter. They, they don't matter. They haven't mattered as much under many facets of American constitutional law, but uh, their time has come. Mm -hmm. But they are, they're already recognized in systems all around the globe. As Aaron mentioned, uh, about 160 nations have a guarantee of a right to human dignity, and that's something that's enforceable. It can somebody can file a lawsuit, go to court, and people have. And there are thousands of cases um, and jurisprudence that's that's developed uh, uh, in accordance with that. That Erin <laughs> chronicles in her ter this terrific book on courts, constitutions, and the worth of the human person. And so, what we see are judges engaging constitutional rights to human dignity um, to uphold. Um, equal protection, to uphold uh, rights to education, to food, to shelter, to privacy, to family, mm -hmm. to uh, freedom against um, harsh treatment during imprisonment, in a whole variety of ways. So it's really revolutionized constitutionalism across the globe. And most recently in the United States in the Obergefell case uh, regarding same-sex marriage, um, it was the central feature of the Supreme Court's determination that the United States Constitution guarantees the right of people to marry the person they love. You were going to ask us about what people can do. Yes, I am going to ask you okay. that. Okay. So typically we end with giving people ways they can help or they can do something about these particular rights. Uh, obviously, you're helping a lot of law students and and current you know people who are lawyers or, or in the legal system. Is there anything um, citizens can do to promote or protect these rights? Um, I think the first step is just being aware of them. And, and that's why I think a podcast like this is just so fantastic. Um, 
But I think the first thing is understanding that we really do have rights and they are underutilized. We frame things in terms of human dignity because we think that's a useful way to think about it. But whether or not that resonates, people should be aware of their rights and should be aware of their abilities to claim their rights. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, so I think the takeaway for for your listeners perhaps is to think about dignity as a right, not just not simply a concept uh, and not simply some sort of philosophical um, form that, that academics might use or, mm-hmm. or what have you. But it matters. It matters in upholding rights in a whole variety of ways. And I don't mean in some uh, abstract way. I mean, think about it. When the government tells kids they can't go to school. The government tells uh, those who are trying to um, come to the United States that they can't. When the government is trying, or when the government differentiates based upon gender or race or religion or what you say or what you think or what your points of view are, really what that is is an attack on one's dignity. And what is underappreciated, at least in the United States, is that there's a role under law for dignity to protect those rights. And that's what the Dignity Rights Project aims to advance. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Aaron and Jim, for being here today. Thank you. For taking the time to share your expertise and helping us understand these particular articles a lot better. Um, is there anything you'd want to say in closing before we end? Yeah? I want to say thank you very much. And maybe you'll be with us again in a future podcast. We'd be happy to. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. All right.